Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and this week's Super Brain is Richard Roper, author of Something to Live For, a lovely novel about loneliness. I know that sounds like a really weird thing to say, but it truly is. I read the book in between long walks on the beach and dips in the pool to cool down way back in 2019 when going on holidays was a thing. Anyway, I know it doesn't exactly sound like an uplifting holiday read, but it truly is. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very excited to talk to you. I loved your book. Oh, thank you. And I want to call it How Not to Die Alone, but <laughs> it's something to live for. And that's probably actually a good place to, to start the book with two titles. Yeah, it's a funny one, really. It's um, So the original title that I had when I wrote it was... Um, how Not to Die Alone. And that was how uh, I submitted it to my agent. That's how I found an agent. And then that's how the book went out on submission to publishers. And when I had a meeting with with Orion, my eventual uh, publisher, it was one of the first things they asked me about was whether I was, uh, whether I'd be up for changing the title. And I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest. I was just, it took me so long to think of. And then when I sort of arrived at it, I thought, oh, great, that's kind of, that's the one, that'll, that'll be grand. And then it's only when you, because particularly at that point as well, I hadn't even really imagined that it was going to get published or anything. I was just in this land where I was just writing it for me. So I hadn't really kind of thought about the point where a publisher says, when someone sees this book on the shelf, are they going to pick it up? And so, yeah, in the UK, they suggested that I that I change it. And I racked my brains and eventually came up with Something to Live For, which is a, a song, a jazz standard that Ella Fitzgerald, who plays quite a big part in the book, would sing. So it kind of fit quite nicely. But the, my American publisher were very much kind of gung-ho about the original title, How Not to Die Alone. So they just sort of forged their own path. And then this, that was sort of how it, it had been up until a couple of months ago, where the American publisher decided to change the paperback to match the UK title. Obviously, with events in the world at the moment, having a book called How Not to Die Alone, you slightly lose the kind of ironic, kind of sarcastic humour, and it just seems incredibly bleak. So I think they decided, on balance, definitely the right decision to to change it. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, I, you know what? I was having a conversation with friends last night and we were actually just talking about that. You're a nonfiction editor. I've only written nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And um, we were discussing whether um, I just got my copy edits back and I, I'm really good with edits. I love them. And like, yeah, great. Take that. I take that out. And I took them all out. But as I was kind of working through them, I realized hmm, there's a theme going on. She's removing all my jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> and, and, and I kind of said, hmm, okay, I don't mind that. Take them. Like, I'm not precious. If it makes the book better, that's fine. So then by the time I got to the end, I went, I need to find out why this happened mm. just for future writing. So I asked my commissioning editor, were they taken out because they weren't funny mm. <laughs> or because they don't belong in the book? You know, it's a nonfiction book mm. and it's, I suppose, a health and wellness kind of book. I won't breach her confidence in what she said, but it wasn't her decision. But actually, we were discussing that last night and it was so funny. I had two friends over. One is an American literary agent and the mm. other actually is a writer and a columnist and they both disagreed. So huh. one of them felt they should be in the book, the writer, because they're your personality. And that is very much, and I give talks I always kind of have humor and fun. And sometimes I'm giving talks about dementia, you know, and I make animations and Mm -hmm. I make them uh, humorous because people want to be entertained and that's the best way to educate people. But then the literary agent was of the feeling that 
no, they shouldn't be in a book like that. And then as we got talking, which is my long winded way to come round to why it sparked that, was we were saying, of course, what's funny now mightn't be funny in four years time. Or as we've learned, not just with COVID, but with how humour and comedy has changed yeah. over the years. Like you look at comedy shows from 20 years ago and you go, oh my God, did yeah. they actually say that? So, That's yeah. So true. It's kind of crazy how I think, I think definitely from a, from a humorous perspective, it will change things to a certain degree. And with, with any kind of anything that really, I thought it was really interesting. I saw um, a couple of months ago, uh, Dave Chappelle, the American comedian, kind of dropped a kind of new comedy special, which was recorded with social distancing outside. And it was in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And it was just sort of really, you know, kind of visceral half an hour of him just talking on stage. And there, there were a few jokes in there, but it was mainly just... And it wasn't him sort of saying, oh, you know, you can't find humour about anything. Because I think most comedians would say, I think that anything can be funny if the context was right. But it was just the idea of the set that he would have done if these things weren't going on in the world compared to what he had to do. It does change it. And yeah, I think it would be, yeah, the idea of what jokes you can leave in and what have to come out of the moment mm. is fascinating. Yeah. And, you know... There's something kind of from a brain perspective as well, because I was just writing something myself about an entirely different topic. And um, we laugh during the saddest of times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, your book has endless funerals. <laughs> <laughs> really does. And actually, though, that's part of the healing. I mean, any funeral I've ever been at afterwards, there's a lot of laughing. You mm. remember, you remember funny jokes, you laugh, we make jokes. I mean, you look at any catastrophe and within a short period of time, if you scroll through Twitter, people will have come up with jokes. And there's this balance where we're deciding that you can't, it's horrible to make those jokes. And I've been on that camp to, mm. you know, as a human being and saying, no, you can't make jokes about COVID or, you know, mm. whatever. Um, but then on the other side, then me understanding human nature and the human condition is it is a self-preservation strategy of our brain that kind of says stress is building up, stress is building up. What is nature's best stress reliever? And it is laughter. Yeah. Um, it reduces your cortisol levels, everything. So we have to kind of find that balance with, yes, we need to laugh in the face of these things. But I suppose, yes, it's not at the expense of someone else, but still. It's about yeah, intent, I suppose, isn't it? A lot of it. It's about what the, I think you're completely right. And I think it's something that, I mean, my friendship group is made up of people who are constantly trying to make each other laugh. I kind of sort of really take a step back sometimes and kind of go, it's very rare where you have an evening where the talk is completely sort of sincere. Even if someone's going through something, you, you're kind of almost, you want them to kind of make a joke about it so that you can sort of see the other side of whatever they're going through. And I think... It's so true what you say about when something happens, there's immediately, especially yeah, on Twitter or YouTube or whatever, you wait to see what the first joke. And I think it's, some people are just, there's a slightly more nihilistic way where people are just trying to be funny and get say something for shock value. But then there are other times, I think I'm going to completely forget her name now, but there's another American comedian who did, this is about eight or nine years ago, where she did a show immediately after finding out that she had cancer. Okay. It's an absolutely incredible half an hour of stand-up where she's just sort of talking to the audience about this information that she's just learned and being hysterically funny about it. And the crowd don't really know what to do. But by the end of it, they're kind of spellbound, but also laughing. And you can see that it's her helping kind of herself understand it through the medium of just of being funny about it and going really dark and then being sincere. And it's just, it's it's what we do to kind of yep. to, get, to get through things, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure it was really cathartic for her. Mm. Yeah, I I kind of find that I have a dark sense of humour and mm. for me it helps and I think you know interestingly um, I like to always look at the acknowledgements on people's books mm. acknowledgements and dedications tell a huge amount uh, your acknowledgements I was so envious in a way because it's interesting your book really is about loneliness mm. and relationships and it's wonderfully done and we'll come back to that more but then I look at your acknowledgements page and you have so many friends uh, <laughs> No. <laughs> That's so funny you say that. That's really interesting. It, why is it funny that I say that? But Yeah, no, no, I think it's, I would say that I'm someone who doesn't think I've got that many friends in a way where I'm always staggered when I see people sort of, you know, when you ask them what their plans are for the weekend and they, they're talking about a thousand different people they're seeing. I think what maybe I've got is a, I think every single person I thanked on that page is probably goes, is there wouldn't be many 
more friends I've got than are on that page. Do you know what I mean? And I think, and also as well, they tend to be, I think 95% of those people were people I've met since I moved to London about eight or nine years ago, who I've met through the job, actually through publishing. But I think I've, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky that that core group of friends who I've sort of grew up with them. So we all started on the same sort of rung of the ladder in the publishing business on the editing side, on the marketing publicity side. And we've all just luckily in one way or another, everyone seems to have sort of gone up and up and up and everyone's kind of doing really well and it's just you know they were there through the times where books had got rejected or I mean I still think one of the things I've missed so much about not being in the office is that feeling on Friday night where it's five o'clock and you know you're going to get to the pub and have a drink with the same people and and it's going to be that kind of release where all the stuff that's been building up over the week you're just going to be able to get it out so yeah without them I without that support I wouldn't have written the book I don't think. Yeah, well, I just think, yeah, books are a collaboration. Mm. You know what I mean? You're with your day job hat on, Mm. you're an editor. So um, and you do, you know, you thank people who've read first versions of the book and and all that sort of thing. Um, So these are, to my mind, well, I suppose, as you said, they're in the same industry, but it's lovely to have people that you feel you can trust to do something like that with because you're bearing your the inside of your brain to the me you know oh my god yeah it's i i scary. the thing was as well as it took quite a long journey to get to this first book that's been published i wrote a book a first novel about four years ago which it got an agent but it didn't get picked up by a publisher but before i only told i think two people that I was writing that book because I think that one of the things I've the learned first one. the first one yeah I couldn't really hide it after that because it was probably quite clear that I was because I had to go through the whole kind of oh I've been rejected it's so sad kind of stage <laughs> but I think kind of one of the things I've I learned maybe through the whole process of that was I'm really glad I didn't tell that many people at the start that I was writing because I think as soon as you make it seem like it's something that you're doing for anyone else other than yourself it means that you're kind of constantly probably spend more time kind of in the pub talking about your craft and your process and your challenges rather than just sitting on your ass in a chair and doing the work, which I think is the only bit of writing that's ever really stuck with me is something that I read. Um, I think it was last year by uh, Kevin Barry, the Irish novelist who basically sort of said, there are so many people who are talented enough to write a novel, but it's not that many people that can be bothered just to sit in the king chair and just write it. So I'm sort of glad at this stage where I'm, you know, it's become a thing that I can talk to my friends for advice about it, but I'm glad that I can have kept it sort of quiet. I mean, when I gave a first draft of the first book I wrote to my friend, it wasn't a sort of, oh, can you give me notes and does the second act work? It was just, please, can you tell me that I'm not an insane person who thinks that he can write? That was the main thing and okay. that was and it took about you know four or five drinks in the pub for me to kind of go please can you just almost at arm's length can you tell me what you think yeah. and he was very much sort of hand on my shoulder going yes you're not insane it's you know you've written a book well done and I, that was kind of all yeah. I needed really yeah it's great to have that so your first published book it got a preempt <laughs> it did yeah it did. Uh, so tell the listeners what a preempt deal, because that's pretty damn exciting for a first time yes. uh, author. It is, yeah. And I would feel quite kind of embarrassed about talking about it in terms of how excited I was about it's it. Just I think, you and me. <laughs> but, I think, but I think it's it's better at least that I had the, the previous book got rejected so that I could have had the sort of, oh, I'm sad and, and it's, you know, how woe is me. And then that when this... Yes, when something to live for got it went out on submission uh, both in the uh, the UK and uh, in Europe and America on a Thursday night. By the Friday, we'd accepted a German preemptive offer, which was wow. When publishing, it tends to be either there'll be an auction where different publishers are kind of bidding against each other, or a publisher will sort of put their kind of neck out and say, you know, we're going to try and sort of blow everyone else out the water with our offer and they'll put a deadline on it. It's one of the things I enjoy least about being an editor because I, the idea of making someone offer and then saying this deal comes off the table in three hours is something that I just, I can't really believe myself when I'm saying it anyway. So, so yeah, so that happened and it was very, very confusing because I hadn't really, I'd spent the preceding three weeks when I knew the time was coming, trying to make myself not daydream about anything like this happening. So it was particularly bizarre because A, that it happened so quickly and B, that it was a German deal. I just couldn't quite get my head around that. And then, yeah, the following week I had a day where the same thing happened in the UK and America. And the American 
deal, which which the offer came through at about 10.30 our time. And because I'd obviously been celebrating the UK offer, I'm not sure I was in the best place to make any kind of uh, big life decisions, but I was sat with a pizza on my lap blurrily trying to concentrate on friends which i just put on netflix and suddenly i was going yes i will accept that this financial <laughs> offer like it was the most natural thing in the world so, and, yeah. and camille did you finish eating the pizza or like <laughs> i think i did in a sort of vague kind of blur but it was all just i just I, it was the one time in my life where i've never really understood it when people have a kind of oh it's you know i had to pinch myself but i did genuinely literally physically pinch my arm to kind of right. go this isn't a thing where i'm in a like there's another version of me. I'm, well, this is me, and I'm in a kind of in a padded cell somewhere, kind of talking to some little weird glove puppets that I've made. Going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a punishing deal. I'm like, of course <laughs> you have. Here's your pills now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a mad. I mean, day. it's pretty surreal anyway, just to get published. You know, you can, mm. it's kind of a moment where you kind of go, oh, 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 somebody else actually thinks that my writing's okay, and that yeah. people might want to buy it. Like that's kind of pretty cool anyway. And for as as you know, with nonfiction, you're not talking preemptive deals. And you're not talking auctions, really. Well, for someone like me, you're talking, a, you know, an advance and, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a publication date. And for me, that was just super. And then, but of course, the minute you get that and you minute you get that published, you're going, oh, will they do another one? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? When I found out that I was getting published, I met up with someone, uh, an old friend who's a writer and who got published way before me. And their first bit of advice was along the lines of, have you worked out that it doesn't get any better than this or something? And it was quite a kind of strange, sort of at the time, kind of, you know, a bit of a punch in, oh. the, in the chest moment. But it's it's such a good piece of advice. I think that, that there's an, especially I think if a kind of uh, a lack of success with your writing or it hasn't quite gone anywhere and then you get that kind of magical yeah. This city gimme published writer. I think there's part of you that thinks I will now exist on a sort of higher plane of happiness where because I've achieved this goal, everything will just be sort of kind of brilliant and you're walking down the street and people sort of move out of the way and you, and the bus that splashes someone else doesn't splash you. But it's bollocks. <laughs> you're then, you know, you've got a whole I was exactly the same as you. I was sort of thinking, Oh, you know, is it gonna sell when I want you know, will it get terrible reviews and all of this? And I think what I managed to do was to kind of take a few steps back and just really let myself feel kind of proud and pleased about just the moment of getting that far. I'm, I'm very sort of lucky that I've got all these people, these gurus giving me good advice. But someone said, oh, you should keep a folder in your emails of basically a nice emails that people have, are sending you at the Aww. moment, which particularly because I work in publishing and I'm not told anyone that I was writing apart from a kind of a couple of people. So the weirdest thing was that they all found out about it because a kind of a scout report from America kind of said, oh, yes, this book has been. And so I didn't I luckily I wasn't in the office that day, but I suddenly had all these emails from people going, what is this? Was is that this you? Real? Is this you? So it was sort of kind of amazing because I then had this day where I was just getting all these emails from people and it was from people who I'd maybe met only a couple of times, literary agents or whoever, just seeming to be just really excited pleased and excited you. and excited for me. So yes, there is still an, if I'm ever having a kind of day of, oh God, I'm not sure I can write this next book, I will allow myself five minutes to kind of go back and, and go into that email folder and just as a bit of a pick me up. So I highly yeah, recommend no, that. And it, it's great. It's one of my pieces of advice for mm. people, you know, is to remember to smile during the day and laugh and have a store of, you know, funny videos on your phone or something that you can go to that when you start to feel the, you know, going down, you just get in there preemptive yeah. in a way and then yeah. get in there. But it's interesting what you were talking about, what happens with the happiness thing. You thought, you know, do I stay up there? The, the thing is, the brain and human beings as a species were adaptive. That that's how we have survived. And the brain constantly adapts and changes. And that's why if we end up being put in prison or something like that, it's horrific. But over time, you can adapt because mm. it helps us to survive. But the thing is, the same happens with happiness levels. You adapt and th that kind of becomes your new norm. It, yeah. you know. And I suppose then that really good advice is enjoy the moment, live in the moment yeah. uh, and make the most of that. But uh, yeah, it is hard to not sometimes, like I have to try and rein myself in. Yeah, you're going... Oh, yeah, that's okay. But what if <laughs> you know, and you're already yeah. you're already downing on yourself? Mm -hmm. Anyway, your book is something that I'm actually very passionate about. Something that I write about and give talks about is loneliness mm -hmm. and explain what happens in the brain when we become lonely and socially isolated. And I suppose in ways to help people not get lonely and understand what their feelings are are about. And I think I did a booster shot on this show about it already. But your book is in a way about loneliness and about Andrew, who's a lovely character, really nice. Um, 
and I mean that nice in the nicest possible way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just I know, a genuinely, yeah. uh, you know, nice sometimes. I always remember, I think it was a Madonna interview, one of those where they followed her on tour and someone came in and said nice and she said nice. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I it mean does, it. I know what yeah. you mean. It can, it can sound like, a bit, a, like an insult sometimes. Like it's a bit like, like an insult. But he, or something. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I'm mean. not misinterpreting him. Mm-hmm. He is just kind of a nice guy. Mm. But um, I'm conscious of not giving too much of the book away because it is in a way a little bit of a mystery. Mm. It's a study of human condition. And actually, when I was doing a bit of research on you and reading some previous reviews, I discovered apparently there's, I don't know whether it's a genre, um, uplet. Oh, yeah, uplets, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny one that I'd never heard of it until. Oh, how do you know? I think, I think until um, I was having conversations with my publisher about sort of what market they saw it for or whatever. And I think, yeah, I think from my understanding, I mean, it's one of those things where, as you'll definitely know, publishing is an industry where there are these sort of buzzwords and they exist for about six months and then everyone kind of forgets about it. But I think it, it's the kind of shorthand so shorthand, that people know yeah. what they're talking about. And, and our brain likes those things. It allows us to categorize something. Mm. It's like this. And actually, which I thought, sorry, if I was you, I would have been very pleased. I think it was an Irish Times review I read and it spoke about your book in the same sentence as Eleanor Oliphant is perfectly fine. And another book that I Mm. loved. Yeah, um, I, think, nice. I think as a as a kind of category, it's funny, really, because I think it sort of came about, I suppose, from how I feel about it. It was a, a few years ago where things at the time seemed to be at rock bottom in the world in terms of politics and everything kind of that was going on. I mean, hilariously naive to think that, that we thought that was going to be rock bottom three <sighs> years ago, but there we go. Yeah. But, but sort of it was, I think, probably a, I know, there was just a sense that people thought people aren't going to want to read about you know, if you have a book that's being pitched as, you know, here's a lo- book about loneliness, you're probably thinking, well, do I really want to read that? Whereas yeah. having this kind of catch-all term for books that are take on kind of serious topics, but ultimately try and show you a way to the other side, kind of show you the light, it's a good way of kind of, of categorizing that, I think. So, yeah, I think it works, definitely. Yeah, and there is lots of lovely humour in the book. And I guess in another episode of this season of the show is Anna McPartland. She writes about death. Mm-hmm. Um, but really humorously, you yeah. know, there's always, you know, and as she said, it, it, you know, as she said in that episode, her, she said, oh, I'm writing another book and, and her friends will say, well, who are you going to kill this time? You know, <laughs> um, and it's very much Irish humor in, in mm-hmm. her book around them. But, um, it's great ways to get at again. It's using humor around serious stuff and it gets you thinking without having you to feel very morbid about something. And certainly for me, for somebody who is actually advocating that we need to treat social isolation as a health issue because it's as bad for your health as smoking and obesity mm. and and not for the reasons in this book where people die alone. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just for while you're living alone, what it does to you. Anything that sort of shines a light on that is always going to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly if it's through something that entertains people. And Anne Griffin, actually, similarly, it's a kind of a theme that comes up. Her book, When All Is Said, uh, hers is an 84-year-old man. And interestingly, she was saying a lot of people, when they spoke to her about the book, didn't actually ask her questions about loneliness, which oh. was rather interesting. But she was kind of a bit cross because she wanted to write features about it. She wanted mm. to kind of highlight it. But it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Now, her book wasn't really a humorous book. It's an excellent book, though, as well. And funny parallel in it, in her book, her main character deals with the loss of of loved ones, you know, people who have died on him mm-hmm. um, by talking to them. He talks right. to them in his head and he has conversations with them and stays connected to them. And that's kind of the link um, mm. I see here with this book, because Andrew, not giving away too much because we learned pretty early on that Andrew has a wife, Diane, and two kids, mm. but he lives alone. And yes. essentially, he has really created this family that actually really, in a way, is a human ploy to avoid loneliness. Yes, yeah, I think that's it was it's funny really. It's only when I look back on the on the book and the and the writing of it that, that I've realized how much of that really came from me and and sort of I feel like I should definitely point out that I'm not the same as as Andrew, but it's there are definitely <laughs> I had So those friends that you acknowledge <laughs> just all fictional, just <laughs> Steve, John, all oh, these guys all around me now. No, but I, I think that I I mean, I definitely I went through and, you know, still do on time from on occasion kind of deal with loneliness. And I think part of that was um, 
sort of arriving in London as a 22, 23 year old with all these expectations about the kind of the life I was, I was going to, to lead. And although I did my sort of social life and everything else did, you know, it explode. There were, I think, moments, particularly kind of when I got into the later part of my 20s, where, you know, people were settling down or whatever, or there was that, that slight sense that I hadn't really sort of considered that anything was going to change other than meeting up with the same people I did every weekend, going to the pub and just, you know, having fun. And it just, there were moments where that just sort of started to to kind of dissipate a little bit. And I decided to move in on my own. And there were times where I sort of, I think a lot of it was almost wishing that I was in the same boat as as other people or comparing my life to other people, particularly with, I got into a real thing of just being on social media and Instagram and just seeing people with, at the time, not realizing they're kind of heavily curated lives where they're sort of showing what a fantastic, happy, brilliant time they're having. And I think that I would, there'd be sort of those occasions where you sort of think, oh, I wish I could be, you know, be leaving a party to go to, you know, to another friend's house or a kind of partner's house or whatever. And there were just moments where I just didn't kind of quite have that. And then there was one particular moment, which I'm sure I've exaggerated the story, but I'm, this is what really sort of the heart of that sense of um, of almost exaggerating another life in the way that Andrew does, which is that I was in my office, uh, in the office kitchen one morning on a Monday morning, just making a cup of tea and a colleague just kind of making conversation, just asked me what I'd done at the weekend. And for whatever reason, I just hadn't really done anything or seen anyone. It was one of those particularly sort of grumpy kind of uh, isolating weekends, but just completely kind of on autopilot. I just said, oh, I saw some friends. And then she said, all oh, right, what did you do? And uh, I, for whatever reason, of all the things, I said, oh, we went to uh, a museum. And then she just <laughs> obviously was like, all oh, right, what museum? And then oh, no. for the next five minutes it's me just kind of like hastily improvising and I could see you know she was looking at me because I must have had this sort of strange fearful look in my eye and it was all it was just sort of ridiculous and you know I luckily I could sort of completely see the funny side of it but I think part of it was that I should have just said like oh no I didn't didn't really do anything or you yeah. know just didn't do much because that's not an embarrassing thing but you no. know, it's, it's just that's what but it just it was more I realized that I probably was making myself feel more lonely by sort of going oh here's what people's expectations are yeah and so that's really where sort of kind of exaggerating that quite a lot with Andrew in the book where yeah he's in this position in a job interview where he gets um he, he sort of is, is drifting <laughs> off great moment, <laughs> oh thanks it's 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 one of those moments where I just thought oh this this could be a thing he sort of gets caught out because he's too confused by uh he's looking at the interviewer's weird teeth and he's just so confused by what's happening and he doesn't realize the question he's been asked is about whether he's he's got um, kids himself, and then he ends up just sort of um, yeah improvising again and saying that yes, he's got a, a wife and and two kids. And at the time, it's just him thinking it's almost just him doing it for a kind of oh, what could this be like? Just to sort of pretend I'm yeah. normal like everyone else, thinking nothing of it. And then of course he gets the job, and then from then on he sort of yeah. He, he, <laughs> and then he becomes very attached to them. But the moment mm. in the interview is funny because yeah, as you say, he's distracted and. Um, <laughs> I want to say Wallace and Gromit was that. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he was. Yeah, he thought he your was, man looked like. Yes, like Wallace and Wallace and Gromit, which was a strange thing when I had to try and um, do my edits for my American publisher, trying to explain oh. who Wallace. So that was a moment, and I just thought, you know what, they'll get it. It'll, they'll probably work. Yeah, yeah, our people can Google, you know, whatever. But he asks them, and he he's no idea what the question is, so he decides mm. to go yes, and then he go, the, the next follow up is how many? Oh, I lose track sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah, that's really bad. I'm laughing at my own joke there. That's well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> it, it, it has survived. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's interesting, kind of, you know, what you say about the loneliness. I mean, I've started talks by saying, um, hands up if you. So, you know, hands up is always a risky thing when you're giving a talk and there's a few hundred people in the room. So I thought long and hard about how to phrase it. So actually, the question I ask is rather than saying hands up, if you've ever felt lonely, I say hands up if you've never felt lonely. Oh, right. You know, Hmm. and pretty much nobody puts their hands up. It's a nice way not to put people on the spot. Uh, One talk, one one woman put her hand up and I kind of nearly want to say, oh, I need to talk to you elsewhere because you're not normal. (laughs) (laughs) So it just gets the point across that loneliness Hmm. is perfectly normal. And the thing is, probably if you go back to that moment in the kitchen, that actually could have been a moment to really address your loneliness by Mm. if you had literally just said, you know what, I did nothing. It was a pretty boring weekend. The person who asked you may have turned around and says, oh, God, fuck me too. You know, the longest weekend. And then you might have actually even said, well, you know what, you know, you share a moment and it's the start of a friendship, whereas you push people apart when you are less honest. That's one of the reasons I really value honesty, because I think you've kind of really got nothing to lose apart from moments, I suppose, where it's to do with jobs and, you know, you really don't want to do what you did when you were a child. <laughs> this is a little moment here. Like okay. tell your boss that they, they've got a weird haircut. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh God. Yeah. Which is going back to, uh, I will explain myself. I obviously have to do a bit of research mm. um, when I'm looking for people. But actually what I've found since I've very recently entered the writing and publishing world is that actually editors and literary agents, etc., they really don't have very much online profiles. They're kind of mm. guarded. So say when I researching other guests, comedians and writers, you find just lots of mm. stuff and you can find pieces out that you can talk to people about. But you really, there's kind of the book and mm. there's your job as a senior commissioning editor. Yeah. And um, there's not a lot else. And I'm kind of going, OK, I have a lot to talk about with the book and, mm. you know, we can spring on topics and it's working out very well. But I said, I need some more stuff. Mm. So I thought then I'll, I'll have a look at your Twitter. <laughs> right. but that's a lot about your books as well. <laughs> yeah. But I did find some lovely moments and your book is dedicated to your mum and dad. Mm which is really sweet. And as a mum myself, yeah, that would be lovely to have that. But your dad during lockdown was sharing pieces of his diary, which is lovely from 1994. So I gather by them, you're pretty young Mm. um, at the time. But apparently he quotes you in his diary saying, come blimey, look at his hair rather loudly at a passerby with an unfortunate haircut. It's a lovely moment to have that. (laughs) It is. I mean, that's been, yeah, one of the highlights of lockdown has been my, yeah, my dad's yeah, my dad's kept a diary, I think, since, yeah, the early 90s. And he would sort of find a kind of choice passage. My dad is is where I get my sense of humour from, really. He's got a very dry uh, sense of humour. You can tell that he's, you know, in the... It's a funny one, really, because I think he's very sort of private with his his diaries. We're not ever allowed to read them. But I get yeah. the sense that, to a certain extent, he's right for the, for the moments where we maybe will get to read them at some point in the future. Because they're very... They're yeah. so sort of funny and... At least, you know, those bits are. And um, and so, yeah, and I think really, you know, I dedicated the book to mum and dad because it was really, you know, they're kind of a mixture of, of the way that the two of them brought me up that got me to the point where, you know, where I could write something. So I think it was, you know, my dad's very funny and is very much about sort of work ethic. And I think the sort of sitting down and sitting my ass in the chair and actually writing it and trying really hard uh, came from him. And then my mum you know took me to libraries when I was a kid and just made books just seem nice. like the most exciting thing in the world and both of them really have just sort of in the sweetest way have dedicated themselves to to me and my two sisters and and I sort of wanted to kind of repay you know it kind of it was sweet actually because 
I'd not told them that I dedicated the book to them. And I think the dedication only appeared in the, I think I'd sent them a proof copy, but they'd not seen the finished version. So it was only just at the book launch where they realized that. So my mum had a bit of a cry. I think she was a bit overwhelmed by it. But oh, it was, yes. But it, was, uh, it is really it was, lovely. I dedicated my book to my husband. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't have written it without him doing all sorts of, you know, housework and everything. Mm. Um, And I was rather disappointed, actually. They were short on pages. And it just says, for David, on top of the published by blah, blah, blah. They didn't give a a separate page. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, oh, I was just... For the paperback or whatever, or you should that should oh, change. Oh, it just was so. <laughs> That's annoying. So anyway, yeah. So my talk at the book lunch was really just, mm-hmm. yeah, dedicated to him. Um, but oh, uh, yeah, and it is very nice, and it's lovely that you have this family. And and Andrew in the book doesn't, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. So for anyone who hasn't read it, like really, just go get yourself a copy. There's a lovely conceit yes um i think is it that really so we have the story of andrew so he works for the council and this was sparked the idea for the book mm-hmm. i believe yeah it was one of those kind of i just came across this article on online completely by chance really which was following a day in the life of uh, council workers in liverpool i think um whose day job was to deal with the situation where someone has died alone and so they are going to the house after the person, after the body's been taken away. And it's their job really to try and piece together this person's existence and from everything to trying to find out whether they've got a, a next of kin and or what their financial situation is because there's a funeral that has to be paid for and all of this. And it was just sort of, it was kind of just a staggering read because they were talking so sort of stoically and calmly because to them it was obviously their day job. But I just couldn't really put myself in in their shoes the idea that this was what they were doing every day as, as a job so that's what really and particularly actually the, the stuff I, that I then went on to read about how quite often these workers will attend the funerals of the people if they don't think anyone else is going to be there and it was just such kind of kindness in in that act and such sort of sim, kind of simple kindness to it that that sparked the idea of banjo and it's I suppose it's the for him, he, this is what he's doing as his day job. But at the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, this is kind of what's going to happen to me unless something changes. And But because he's clinging on to this fake family that he's invented, so all his colleagues think that he's got uh, just, you know, that he's got a kind of happy life outside of work. So he can't really change anything. But it's only when uh, Peggy joins the office that he then things start to change. Mm. And actually, I, just as you were saying that, um, probably a better word for him, uh, Andrew, uh, a better word than nice is to say he's kind. Mm. Um, and it's those little kindnesses that can make a huge difference. But the conceit, I suppose, that I'm talking about is we have this main story of Andrew and sort of the mystery of Andrew, really, but all set along all these different funerals and these different people. So you've got some really poignant short stories within the novel. I mean, is that a good way to describe it? It Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it was, um, I saw a a video on, on BBC, on BBC website. I think it was again, following someone who does the same job that Andrew does. And I think it, it was just immediately obvious because the job involves trying to put the pieces together in someone's life. It's the idea that, you know, you find a birthday card and it's it's whoever, what the message has been written inside it, or it's seeing someone who had, um, I think it was Aston Villa uh, bedclothes still. I sort of thought, well, that's someone, you know, that's a man in their 50s or whatever. It's sort of, yeah. and, you, and you sort of got a sense of just from, if you were to, to go into someone's house, you kind of get a sense of what sort of person they are. But I think because it's someone who's clearly kind of in a bad way, maybe, or maybe they weren't, maybe they were completely happy with how things were going, but you mm. just sort of, it was trying to kind of give a glimpse of just what the final moments might have been for someone or yeah, just to try and in those kind of short scenes, just sort of show how, just how many people will sadly will end up in this position, I suppose. Yeah. Some really, I think Alan and Beryl, yeah, they, so, were, they were a couple, yeah, that were separated. Yeah. So that's yeah. one of the stories where it's quite an intriguing situation that Andrew and his colleague uh, Peggy come across where there's a house where it's full of these little uh, carvings of w- wooden ducks and they're just everywhere and that it's such a kind of unusual thing that they end up they find a photo where it's uh, the person uh, Alan who's died and it's a photo with him and someone called 
Beryl and they're in a bookshop in uh, northeast of England called Barter Books, which is a real bookshop and just the most amazing place. I'd absolutely advise everyone to go there. And so they end up going, Peggy in particular is so intrigued about what this person's... So I suppose just Peggy is the catalyst really that changes Andrew's life. And so we kind of have a, it's not giving too much away to say we have a love story. Yeah, the love story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, when Peggy arrived at Andrew's work, she sort of is a breath of fresh air and she's a completely different personality to him really and is very outgoing and and full of life and Andrew it sort of starts to reconsider everything and starts to kind of think that you know he's in this position where he's either got to carry on living this lie and kind of having with this fake family or he's got to make the decision whether to come clean and obviously risk losing everything by telling coming clean about such a strange thing that mm. he's been doing but yeah so when he and uh, Peggy get the chance to go on this little adventure together on this sort of little mystery um, they're trying to solve it gives him the chance to sort of break free of the of the shackles of his kind of day-to-day existence and yeah for those two to kind of go on a bit of a, a bit of an adventure yeah and, and i mean there's two little lines i've taken out of the book that i think they kind of tell the story in a way um andrew has a little trip not the kind of trip we've just been talking about he actually trips up on this on the street mm-hmm. and um there's a line just when you're describing that because he is alone mm-hmm. uh, and i think the line you have is um loneliness was ever vigilant always there to slow clap his every stumble you know mm-hmm. and that's i think that kind of resonates with everybody because when things happen in our lives, when we are alone, I don't mean lonely, um, part of living is to share that moment with someone else afterwards and say, oh my God, I fell on the street and I was so mortified and I was embarrassed and this happened. Or, oh my God, I got a publishing deal. Mm -hmm. That's part of life. It's hard, dreadfully hard if you have no one to share those with. And I just Mm. thought that was actually a really interesting way to put it. And it's hard and it's harsh, but I think it kind of gets the message across. But then as we go through the book and go on the journey with Andrew, a real journey this time now, not a stumbling trip, there's one moment where he actually says he felt happy more than he felt lonely. Mm. You know, that he was having more times where he was. And I just thought that was lovely because you're never going to be always happy. You, you know, we're always going to have these range of moments. So I think that means much more than saying, oh, he felt really happy now. Yeah, I think that was I'm really glad that you picked up on on that point, because I think it's I never really wanted the book to be a sort of way of. I think there are there are some books that have been written about loneliness, certain novels which I think are slightly different and really really good novels, but have tended to be more about the idea that they're really sort of positive and hopeful looks about communities coming together and people sort of uh, society almost fixing the problem of loneliness. The, what I realised when I was writing something to live for was that, and this is something that I sort of learned myself personally, I think, is that loneliness isn't something that you can sort of completely obliterate. And particularly there are some people who I think feel lonely when they're around friends sometimes. I think it's more about that idea of of remembering and realising when you're happy. And that might be when you're on your own. You might be completely content and realise, you know, I'm sat on my sofa watching telly and this is the greatest. It's a With Sunday a pizza afternoon. on my lap. <laughs> on my lap. I'm watching Friends. It's it. And this is that thing I said earlier about you know, getting a publishing deal doesn't didn't mean that I then existed on this different plane yeah. of happiness. If you are feeling happy, you've just got to kind of realise that that's as good as it gets, really. And that's one of the, there's a thing that I always wheel out when I'm talking about this, usually to my friends, drunk and trying to, like I'm being a kind of philosopher, which is <laughs> the idea that um, Kurt Vonnegut, I think it was his uncle who said to him, he had this recurring catchphrase whenever they were sat in a pub somewhere or whatever it was. So I thought, I think, the, in fact, the example he uses is drinking lemonade in the garden and the sun shining down. And he says, uh, if this isn't nice, what is? And that was the thing that then Kurt Vonnegut, I think he's writing a one of those kind of commencement addresses to a university or something. And he says, you must, you know, I urge you when you're feeling happy to say out loud that you're feeling happy, which it could sound like a bit kind of hippie-ish or a bit almost like you're trying to kind of forcibly tell everyone that you're that this is a you know a happy situation but I do truly believe that just having that recognizing when something's nice and just kind of verbalizing it or whatever or just remembering it to yourself you realize that that's the pinnacle which is why you know there's that cliche of when you're looking forward to an event or meeting up with someone or whatever it is half the enjoyment comes from that anticipation of it and then you get there and it might not the you know the gig might be crap or your friend might be in a bad yeah. mood but it doesn't matter it's the moment you have before where you thought, and oh, I, I, I think that's 
possibly why lotteries work, because mm. people can spend hours imagining what they're going to do with the money and enjoy it immensely, you yeah. know. And yes, it's gambling and all the rest, and I won't get into that. But for the price of a lottery ticket, you could have a whole week's worth of imagining how wonderful, oh, yeah. you know, life can be. But there's yeah. a couple of things I want to pick up there on what you just said. And if you don't mind, I'm actually going to rob that little suggestion for some of my talks, actually, about being happy. Because oh, do. Yeah, I will. Because the thing is, so you said there, you know, say it out loud. I'm happy, you know, remind yourself that you are happy because the thing is, our brain has a negativity bias. And that again is just adaptive to help us survive. If you miss an opportunity or a happy moment, you know, there's no threat to your mortality. But mm. if if you miss something negative in your environment, something that is a threat to your well-being or your means of income, whatever, that has consequences. And so it makes perfect sense that your brain is attuned to those. So like, you know, a tip I would say to people is, you know, well, for every negative thought you have, you got to give yourself even five positives. They mm. actually say, you know, it takes about 10 to one. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a brilliant tip to actually say out loud when you are happy, because we are happier probably more than we realize. Mm. It's just we hyper focus on the negative bits and then actually we give them more life and we spend more time thinking about them. The other thing I think then as well is, um, and again, this is kind of going a little bit philosophical, it's contentment. And I actually think, does Andrew somewhere, I do think, talks about something about content? I can't remember exactly, but I think there is that like, you know, is contentment happiness? It, do, do you know, like, what is that distinction? In some way, I wonder whether it's an artificial distinction, you know, mm. because if you're content, for me, I think a lot of happiness is that ability to be lost in a moment. You know, I'm sure you get lost in your writing where time, and I mean, I've, I'm sure the reverse happens too, where you, <laughs> you're going, oh my God. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, when you're in the flow and when it's going really well and, you know, I mean, it's hard to describe that as, oh, I'm so happy, but you are. Yeah, I think yeah. definitely those are my, it's my favourite part really of the whole <clears throat> kind of writing process really you almost know what kind of a writing day you're going to have when you start in the morning. It's very hard. I find it quite hard to sort of shake off. If, if I sort of sit down and think I'm not really feeling it today, I, occasionally I just have to give myself permission to kind of go, don't try today because it will just be a sort of a slog. And if it feels like a slog when you're writing, then that's how it's going to feel to read it as well. But in the, the best moments when it's going well, I always liken it to the idea that it feels a bit like when you're walking down the street and it's an incredibly busy street, but for whatever reason, just at the right moments, people are just moving out of the way or the lights go green and you can walk across the road or whatever it is. And it's not the lights go green and you walk across the road. That'd be a terrible thing. <laughs> the, the green man. The green man. Another one. But it's just that everything suddenly just feels kind of right. And yeah. that's, you know, when you completely get lost in it and, and the kind of the ideas that flow. And that's really is as good as it gets, you're never going to get to a point where you kind of go, this is what a brilliant line this is. Or And in yeah. fact, the, the bits where I kind of, if I've ever thought like, oh, what a great line that is. I yeah, they're the ones, ones that, that comes to go. Out. My head is yeah. sort of going, where does this weird thing come from? Yeah, and I'm yeah, just not thinking, yeah. oh, it was, I was so pleased with myself at the yeah, time. Yeah, but, but it's out of the moment, I think. Yeah. It's in the flow. And, you know, I've talked about this several times on the show that we don't give our brains enough credit. You put the information in, it knows where you want to go. Those days where you sit down, it hasn't actually really figured out the problem yet, yeah. you know, and it will figure that out when you're not working on it, when you're asleep at night or when you're doing something else, chilling out. It's still clicking away, making those connections, figuring out the solution to that problem. And then the days where you say like that, everybody moves out of the way. It's almost like I'm visiting Moses parting or whoever oh, yeah. parted the waters, you know, it's kind of like yeah. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, did, and, yeah. and that's just the flow. Your brain has the answer. Yeah, I, I've definitely had those moments where I've been trying to write something in the evening and and it just hasn't kind of worked. And then if I kind of have a rare good night's sleep, it, more than more often than not, I'll wake up in the morning and it's all, yeah, my brain's obviously been working away in the background. And then suddenly I kind of think, oh, well, obviously here's the solution to that plot hole or yeah. whatever it is. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it does. And it generally, and we know the kind of activity. So uh, actually, it really is, if you want to improve your writing, actually prioritize sleep. Mm -hmm. um, like that, if you're struggling with the problem, sometimes just step back from it and tell your brain and help figure it out. So you uh, 
on your website say that you are procrastinating <laughs> about writing your next mm. novel. I, I love that, you know. And in some ways, I think procrastination is part of the process. We've mm-hmm. just kind of named it, you know. And and when you're talking there, like I was writing my next book during lockdown. My deadline was mm-hmm. like the 15th of April and, and I had a very short deadline for the book Anyway, I had, you know, three months to write it. So I wasn't feeling the creativity a lot. And plus, I was scared and anxious just like everybody else. And so what I wanted to do was actually just talk to people Mm. about what's happening, you know, and and I'm in my room knowing if I don't get X number of words today, I'm in really big trouble. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to make this deadline. And so I knew I hadn't got the creativity. I knew I hadn't got the flow. So what I do, so yes, we procrastinate a bit and we do other things, but then, and I think it's probably different with nonfiction and maybe it's not. I do the stuff that doesn't necessarily need creativity or as much focus. So I wrote this book very differently to how I wrote the previous book, which was very much, I didn't leave a paragraph till I was finished it. Mm -hmm. Um, This time, actually, what I did was I did all the research for each of the chapters. You know, I knew my outline, did my research, wrote down in the most horrible English, this is what I need to tell the readers in this chapter. You know, these are the facts. These are the facts. So then when I eventually did get into the flow, I have the skeleton sort of of my book. Now I need to explain that neuroscience in an easy way. And I need to put my anecdotes in and create a story and move them around. So at least that meant I was able to do that work ethic thing. You know, they can put on my gravestone, you know, she works hard and at least she's a trier. Do you know that kind of way? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I will always work very hard. Sometimes you work very hard with little result, but I do think that's important. And, and any good writer you talk to will always say you got to show up to the page. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's kind of how I get around it. Anyway, can you talk about what your next book is about? Or is that under wraps? And you have a a deal already? Yes. Well, it was it was um, a two book deal. So I'm so this one was under contract. So yeah, it was it's been a a different process. Obviously, the first book wasn't written to a deadline, but this one is. So it's been it's been quite a kind of an unusual thing, I suppose. But I, what can I tell you? I will tell you that it is about two 30-somethings meeting up for the first time uh, since they had a big falling out about 15 years ago. And they're meeting up because they promised each other that they were going to walk the Thames Pass when they were 30 from the source to the sea. Uh, ah. But a lot has gone on in that time. So it's, it's about them trying to figure out what's happened and uh, talk to each other about what's gone wrong. Wow, that's really nice premise. And I'm presuming, am I? No, I'm wrong. I should, you should never presume. But something personal in there, drawing on your own life? Uh, well, I, I think, think writers always draw on their own yeah, life. Yeah, I, I think with something to live for, I almost did it self-consciously. And it seems ridiculous to say that because it does, I think it's very, um, it's so clearly about kind of, stuff I've been through kind of feeling you know with loneliness and whatever but with this second book it's more about me kind of picking and choosing sort of different things and thinking oh that would make a good scene that thing that happened to me rather than it being a kind of letter to myself to tell me to you know to change my life or whatever this is more sort of a drawing on personal experiences I mean it's funny because when I've told people about it immediately they've said oh that'll be about you and so and so then and it's the more you say no it's not the more people kind of say that it is so I'm I'm trying to work out how to talk about it without it seeming like so there we go yeah but I think it sounds like a fab idea you know it's a way of exploring life and themes and and friendship and and sort of the idea of looking back on friendships you've had and trying to work out whether in sort of in hindsight whether you would have done things differently and how much you grow as a person between you know those formative years when you start making friends in your teenage years and it's almost you know the kind of the best friends that you make there it's almost the same as you know first love it's that kind of thing where you Mm. you find your people and you find the sort of person that you're going to be and it's the idea of certainly you know when I hit 30 a few years ago I it's that kind of age where you sort of kind of go you, you start looking back with a bit of hindsight about at school and university in those kind of years and sort of think oh why what would I have done differently if I knew what I did now or kind of my personality had changed my personality then was the same as it is now or whatever so so yeah it's uh it's it's going all right but I am enjoying procrastinating at the moment as I say (laughs) but um 30 is an interesting one I remember really being kind of 
30 being a big one, you know, kind of mm. going, oh, God, I'm going to be 30. Now, I married young and I had two kids when I turned 30. So mm. I kind of had that reverse thing. Like, you know, I stopped being me, you know, mm. that, that sounds really weird. But uh, 30 is really young. <laughs> I know, it's mad. No, I know it's so old, funny. But yeah. obviously, I know it's, I mean, we've almost slightly deliberately played on that in the, the books uh, going to be called When We Were Young. And it's the idea, it's sort of, slightly self-conscious idea because obviously in 10 20 you know all these milestones you must look back and probably it's because it's the first milestone where you sort of I think I don't think it was actually turning 30 for me I didn't really think too much about it I think it was actually I'm 33 now and I think it was maybe when I was 31 where I just sort of felt weirdly more connected to the world and I don't know whether that is because it was the first time I was sort of aware of of hitting a kind of an, an age as a milestone and then sort of obviously the inevitable thing thing that is well how much time have i got left if i've just hit this one milestone what's the next one and then i think it's that weird. i kind of realized the other day that i never ever been someone who ever kind of like cried at films or whatever and now i can't bloody stop crying at anything oh, like no. it's weird. I, don't, I don't even watch them oh i, I just I can't. Kind of, like if i see and it's it can be anything really and it's and i think part of it is sort of it must be some weird part of my brain sort of going, oh, you're going to die one day. Everything's so sad. And it's sort of ridiculous. And a part of me is I feel like, oh, at least I'm a bit more kind of attuned to the world. But I'm like, oh, I wish I could go back I, not caring. Yeah, well, I was I was a lot older when I kind of had that moment because for me, the moment in a way, well, actually, I had a moment when I was 30, around 30, probably actually around the age you are now, where my mother-in-law, her own mother had died very young and she had a friend who was kind of like a surrogate mother, you know, but that friend turned 90. My mother-in-law was about 60 at the time. Mm -hmm. I was about 30. So, you know, we had that gap and on wishing the older woman, the 90 year old happy birthday, uh, she asked her, had she any regrets? And she said, I do, Mary. And it's a big one. She said, I let myself get far too old at 60. Mm. And that stuck with me. That was one of my aha moments in my life because I kind of went, oh, at 60, she had my whole life left to live. Yeah. And I'm only 30. And it just, yeah, it put it, put it in context, made me become a bit more conscious about my living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, since, you know, since turning 50, you kind of go, I've lived more than I've left to live. So yeah. that really kind of gets the motors going, you know. So I think it's a positive. I think from a brain perspective, what's really interesting is what you're talking about. So teenage years, the teenage brain goes through incredible change. OK, and connections are pruned out. And that's why teenagers are a species all of their own. The mm-hmm. world becomes very confusing to them because some of the links and connections in their brain aren't there anymore. So mm-hmm. some things just don't make sense anymore. And there's new things. But our brains don't fully mature. So in our teen years, our brain is about the size that it stays. But obviously it's crinkly, you know, so connections grow, etc. So it doesn't meet full maturity till about 25. Mm-hmm. And particularly in men, it can take a little longer. So that's why young men take an awful lot of risks. You know, their frontal lobes don't fully develop till they're 25. And your frontal lobe is that part of your brain that helps with decision making and assessing risks, etc. So they are dangerous years for Mm. young men, you know, because they will take risks with their own life. It's not just about not fearing their mortality. It's they don't actually have the capacity within their brain to do it properly. So I think Mm. it makes sense that kind of as you come to 30, you're starting to have a brain that's able to view the world in a different way. Plus then, unfortunately, here's the bad news, uh, from about the age of 30 onwards, your brain starts to atrophy. So you start to lose some of your brain. Right. So one of the big pieces um, of advice that I give to people, so it's not good losing brain cells, mm. but the really good thing is, you know, living your life to the full, sleeping, managing stress, doing stuff that challenges your brain, like writing books and pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone is really important. You've got to keep learning. That then will allow you keep pace with that loss. So you can grow new brain cells, new neurons that actually allow you to maintain the size of your brain. Because if you lose brain cells and connections, you're going to lose functioning. And it's funny what happens at around the age of 30 for a lot of people is you're done with university. You're in a job that you know how to do. You probably stop playing sport. You know, exercise is really important for your brain. And you stop doing a lot of the things that help your brain be enriched with connections. Um, And so it's actually a really important stage in your life to realize, no, I've got to give myself challenges and Mm. kind of writing books to a deadline is a pretty good challenge but you mustn't forget the exercise as well because that helps grow new neurons too yes oh that's really interesting what you say that about what happens to the brain and it's i'm 
well, I'm glad to hear you say that purely because that chimes a lot with the two main characters in the book about the point in their life now where they're starting to sort of kind of realize, you know, is this it? Should I be doing kind of other things? What, you know, and and also being stuck in a mindset of what they've been through as, as teenagers and kind of not really ever kind of taking the time to kind of see that they were different, how different they were then. So that's kind of, I feel glad that I can kind of go, I'll say to my editor, oh, this is all scientific. Science, yes, tell them to contact me. Yes, yes, absolutely. No, and it is, you know, it, it, I mean, I'm a neuroscientist psychologist because I, I'm fascinated by human behavior. I would imagine, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it's human behavior that drives you to write. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, I think I'm, boiling it down to a slightly different version of that is that I am it is my absolute favorite thing in the world if two people watch if I'm on a train and there's some sort of argument going on or something or more likely if I kind of in that position where I could accidentally on purpose read someone texting and they're texting and then they're (laughs) deleting a sentence and they're trying again it's just like I like this is the greatest thing in the world because I sort (laughs) of I'm absolutely yeah I'm completely fascinated by seeing how people interact I think I've always had that since I was really young. I don't know, I don't really have any idea why, but I think I've always been aware of people, I don't know, just being in a meeting or something and you sort of see, I wonder why that person said said that or why are they sitting like that? I don't know where it comes from, but I suppose I'm just glad that I found this outlet with a book where I'm able to kind of go off about it. Brilliant, but I, I can't help but think that you do get some of that from your dad having seen his little diaries. He's observing people and recording the funny moments in life. And I just yeah. wonder, does he have little yen to write a book or oh he definitely does i mean when we were kids he uh I mean, i've got this incredibly fond memories of one christmas where he bought i can't remember why he done this what compelled him to do it but he bought a sort of like a little kind of puppet uh thing like a sort of puppet theater where you could sort of put on shows and adjust the lighting and have these characters on stage and we wrote well he wrote a sort of long form silly play which is one of the things where there were clearly loads of jokes in there that went completely over our heads but he just done to make my mum laugh and just we sort of <laughs> we, so we kind of wrote this thing together and and yeah I think he's always yeah harbored an ambition to write and actually he's writing at the moment he's doing a lot of ancestry work so he's looking at kind of the sort of family, which has been his big retirement project and he sends through occasionally the chapters and they're beautifully written and they're also full of color and character and it's this is his book really it's him kind of writing so so yeah i've always um i don't really encourage him enough to be honest but he should be yeah well give him, some, yeah, give him some encouragement because again that's a critical point um in terms of the brain is is, mm. is retirement i'm not a fan of retirement you know because your brain will atrophy it really is use it or lose it mm. and i'm delighted to hear that your dad has this project that he's doing but Mm. also i say to people you know as well like it's never too late to pursue that dream and retirement is a great opportunity to do that because generally your kids are raised your mortgage may well be paid off Mm. and so you actually can invest in that and it's just sometimes really because of society in a way that's why i just really don't like the retirement has that sense of go and sit in the corner and wait until you die and actually it's the moment where you should be grabbing life by the short and curlies And, and i often say to people go back to your teen years what were your dreams what mm. did you imagine you would become? Because most of us don't. Yeah. Um, and say, well, are any of these things that I can pursue now? And no, you're ne- it's never too late and you're never too old. And with age comes incredible wisdom and experience. And when you think about it with your dad, like when I say to you, you give your brain the information and let it solve it. Your brain only has 30 years worth of experience mm-hmm. to solve it. Like your dad's brain will have... Loads. Yeah, so, more. yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be great uh, to kind of encourage them to go for it. And as you yeah. say, the joy is in writing a book and getting it finished. Whether it gets published or not is icing on the cake. But it's the process that is wonderful. Of yeah, course, you so, do want people to read it. But yes, I think if you when you go in something like that, I think yeah, having that mindset of I just want to do this as a pro, you know, just like doing a jigsaw or something, just doing it for yourself and kind of enjoying that process of it. And then, yeah, obviously it's, it's great if it does get published, but if you're writing something purely on the kind of, cause you're, you know, your, your eyes light up with the idea of it kind of it being published and all of that, then you, you probably won't be focusing on the book itself and you'll probably be bitterly disappointed in what kind of happens. So <laughs> yeah, doing those projects just for the joy of doing them is, is the best way I think. So, um, I usually ask people for one of their tips for surviving and thriving in life. A tip surviving and thriving in life. Oh, man. 
Um, well, I suppose my only tip really would be, and it's it's not a new piece of advice or anything, but I think not comparing yourself to other people and reminding yourself that this is your own life and it's your own experiences. And you may look at someone else and think, oh, they've got a much better life than me. They seem so much happier, but you know that they're doing exactly the same thing with other people. So just to remember when you're happy and uh, just to live your own way. And uh, that's, uh, you can't say better than that really, I would say. Yeah, no, that one is brilliant. Remember to say when you're, when mm. you're happy. Well, Richard, it has been an absolute joy talking to you. I could have stayed here talking all morning to be honest and thank you for for giving me um so much of your time thanks so much it's been so much fun thank you inspired by the premise of richard's next book i've decided to make thursday's super brain booster shot about the teenage brain tune in to get a brain's eye view of those cringeworthy angst-ridden risk-taking teen moments most of us would prefer to forget I've included links to Richard's website and his debut novel in the show notes for today's episode. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. If you love the show, please like it, share it, rate it and subscribe to it on Acast, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan or Instagram at Superbrain Podcast or at Sabina Brennan. Till Thursday, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.